Okay, good morning. For those um, who are guests, my name is Pete, and I'm privileged enough to be allowed to preach every so often. I also lead an amazing small... I, I lead a small group. Um, the people in the group are amazing. We just happen to t- turn up, and they're amazing. Um, so Claire and I, my wife and I, we lead that small group, and it's just a, a privilege to be able to serve uh, Jesus in that way as well. And one of the things we've started doing in our small group that we've really found so helpful is we now meet over a meal. And we meet um, a little bit earlier, about seven o'clock, and we, we meet for a couple of hours and we have a meal together. And every so often there's too much food, which I'm sure you think there can never be too much food, but sometimes there is, and we can't finish it all. Not because the, the food is bad, but just because there's too much food. It's that simple. And as I was thinking about today's sermon, I thought, oh man, there's far too much food in these verses that we're looking at. And it's all good stuff, but I'm going to have to leave some of it because we want to have room for the next course, um, for praise and for worship. So I'm sorry if I don't touch on the big questions that you have from this passage. I'm just going to kind of zone in on some things that I thought um, were key. So before we dive in, let us just uh, pray together. Holy Spirit, come upon us. We are your children. We are your people. Come upon us now. Fill this room with your glory. Help us to open our hearts and to make room for you. Help us to actually recognize our need for you. For when there's space and when there's an acknowledgement of need, Lord, you will come. Holy Spirit, take this time. Take these human words and do something eternal with them. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking about um, catchphrases, and everybody kind of loves a catchphrase, and I thought I'd see how good you were with um, kind of people's favorite sayings or somebody. So I've got a a couple of slides for you. What is this uh, Sergei's catchphrase? Simples, thank you. I'm glad somebody is here. And then next one. Don't panic. Okay, good. And then for those who... This one. Lovely, jubbly. And this one, Olivia? Next one? How are you doing? Okay, good stuff. And then uh, this one? What's occurring? Good stuff. Now, I was thinking about catchphrases and I was thinking about, uh, about James and I was thinking about the topic that he, if you want, has a catchphrase that he is synonymous for. And so when we read our Bible passage, I want you to see if you can go, ah, that must be like James's kind of catchphrase. So we're looking in James chapter 5, and we're going, to look at, we're going to read verses 13 all the way through to 16, 17, 18, possibly. Verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? 
Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So, James's catchphrase then is about prayer. Maybe it could be this, if I had a picture, pray, just do it, is kind of James's catchphrase. And you see, James, he had a nickname in the early church. His nickname was Old Camel Knees because he had developed these calluses on his knees while kneeling in prayer. And yet what's really interesting in this letter is this is the first time he really mentions prayer. Throughout this letter, he's been giving us practical advice. He's been giving us something to work on in our day-to-day lives, something to apply. But as he comes to the end of the letter, he's now a real shift from the practical to the spiritual. Before it was things like, um, tame my tongue. It was treat people without having favorites. Do good, be generous, cope and understand suffering. And he was saying there's lots of these practical things that will change our lives. But here he ends in a completely unique and different way. For he says, when you're suffering, pray. Now, this really annoys me. Because it's so kind of blasé, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that you're struggling. Mm, Have you prayed about it? Smack. That's my kind of response. You know, and we kind of become really good at this, don't we? Say somebody's talking to us and they're telling us their problem. Mm, I'll pray for you. And it's kind of like, uh -uh, exit, left. Because, you know, we just kind of throw this phrase out. And I kind of thought, James, you're so annoying in this book, in this verse. But was he being flippant? Was he being uncaring? Well, we need to kind of remember the context. It's really important for us in these verses. Because when I read them in preparation, I had this whole different sermon in mind because I thought, oh, this is what he means. But once I looked at the context and really looked at them, I thought, this is not what he's saying at all. Let's remember, verse 1 of chapter 1. He tells us that he's writing to the tribes scattered among the nations. So he's writing to a church, an assembly of Jews who have become Christians, who have been scattered out of Palestine, out of Jerusalem, by the persecution that we can read about in Acts 7 and 8. And chapter 1 opens up telling them that they are to learn how to be patient in their trials. That despite all the stress and hostility and persecution and temptation and trials that the world is bringing to bear upon them, they are to stay faithful and they are to endure all of it. To endure, chapter 1 says, without wavering, without being unstable, without doubting. He says to look past the pain, look past the persecution, look towards glory. He says to look for the crown of life, as he calls it there in chapter 1. Look for the eternal life that has been prepared for you. That is what he's saying. 
Verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so the context of chapter 5 is this idea of suffering where again he calls believers to be faithful in their suffering. And so when we come to verse 13, and it says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. What is he saying? Because it is silly, because just think of the context. Everyone's in trouble. Everyone in the church is in trouble. By the very nature of them being a Christian means they are in trouble. And the word trouble in verse 13 is the Greek word, and it literally means to suffer misfortune, to be in distress, to be under stress, under tension. And what he's talking about is internal distress caused by external circumstances. It could have been a financial crisis, a relational crisis, something on the outside that is causing their heart to break. And for the believers, tension is at an all-time high. And so he's talking about when life is just too hard. And what does James say to do? He doesn't say, go back and read my letter again so you can actually understand it. He says, if you're in distress, if you're in some form of calamity... If you're feeling the blows of life and feeling crushed, he says, pray. Turn to God for comfort. That's what he's saying. Peter put it this way. Cast all your, what? Your cares, your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Pray. Take it to the Lord. Jonah said, And this is when Jonah was in deep trouble, no pun intended. Jonah prayed when he was there in the belly of the fish. He said, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And so when life isn't going the way it ought, when you're weary with the battle, when you've begun to get sort of crushed under the whole thing, James says, pray. And that's really just a kind of basic truth, isn't it? It's so basic, but it's so easily forgotten. From the time when I was a little kid, I remember singing this song. Do you recognize it? Oh, not if I was singing it, maybe the words. (laughs) Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry, what? Everything to God in prayer. But do we believe it? Do we believe it? Do we believe that prayer makes a difference? Hmm. Back to catchphrases. What's his catchphrase? No, his one. I don't believe it. And I was thinking about this and I thought, you know what? Is that us as a church? Is this our catchphrase? 
We don't believe it. Let's go back to the passage. Still in verse 13. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. And so we've got, if you're suffering, pray. And then the next bit of verse 13, which, to be honest, I think James is having another bit of a laugh here. And he's writing with a touch of sarcasm and irony. Because he writes, is anyone happy? And the church, there's nobody meant to be happy in that church because they're all facing persecution. I kind of go, I can't imagine anyone being happy. But if they are, then sing praises. And the word happy here, it's very interesting. Going back to the Greek again, euthameho is meaning, yo means well, and thameho means soul or spirit. And what James is saying is anyone who is well in spirit should praise God. He's not talking about the physical things or their circumstances. He's saying, if your spirit is well, sing psalms, sing praises to God. And so in verse 13, on the one hand, we have the suffering soul. And then we have, on the other hand, the happy soul. The one hand, the wounded spirit, the broken spirit. On the other hand, we have the whole rejoicing spirit. One is singing praise, and the other is pleading for comfort. He says, if you're cheerful, if you're happy in spirit, if you're strong of mind, strong of disposition, if your inner self is experiencing well-being, sing. But if you're suffering, pray. Now, the main thing I wanted us to really see in verse 13 It's not James's concern for prayer in relation to those who are physically sick. He's not concerned in this section of scripture about those who are physically sick with some disease. But it's those who are having mental anguish, emotional suffering. They're suffering because of the effects of the trials and tribulations that they are facing, the persecution, the hardship of life. And we need to hold on to this context when we come to verse 14. Because when he says in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? It's important that we understand the context. Because when we read that, we think of something else. If I was to say to you, God, I went right up and right down. You have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? You need some context. I could be talking about my temperature. I could be talking about my weight. I could be talking about a roller coaster. I could be talking about riding my bike up a hill or taking a walk. To understand what is being said, we need context. And just as any conversation with any real meaning needs context, so this portion of scripture needs context. Is anyone among you sick? Again, it's not talking about physical illness. It's continuing from verse 13 and is actually talking about those who have gone beyond suffering and have lost the ability to endure. Again, the Greek word, I'm sorry, you're getting a Greek lesson today. Um, The Greek word is astheneho, and it literally means without strength, means to be weak, 
means to be totally done in, totally fatigued, unable to endure anymore. It's the same word that is used to describe Lazarus. When Lazarus got sick and died. It's the same word to describe Dorcas who died. It's the same word that describes the man at the pool at Bethsaida. Bethsaida, I can't do it. You know the one at the pool. And he sat there for years and years. And he didn't have enough energy to get up and go into the pool. It's the same word. So let's read the verse again. Is anyone among you, you who are in the middle of suffering and persecution, is anyone among you unable to carry on? Is anyone among you so done in? Anyone among you so low that you've hit rock bottom, you're at the end, that you're without strength? That is what he's saying. Verse 15 uses the same English word, sick. And again, this word in verse 15 has nothing to do with physical illness. In this instance, the word again comes from the Greek, kamnov, which means to be weary. And this Greek word is again only used twice in two other times in the New Testament. In Hebrews 12, 3, it's translated properly as weary. It says, consider him. And that's Christ. Consider Christ who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Or in Revelation 2, 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. It is the same word that they're talking about here. And it's also the same context. That there is suffering. That life is hard. There are trials. There are temptations. And he's saying, and these verses are saying, don't get weary. Don't lose heart. Another such annoying thing to say, isn't it? Don't get weary. But I am weary. Well, just don't. And I like James at this point because he doesn't just roll out the cliché. He doesn't just go, "Mm, pray about it. He doesn't say that. Because I think James actually gets it. For to say to somebody he's so spiritually weak, so fatigued, so spun around by life circumstances, to say to them, come on, just pray about it. That's not comfort, is it? And James, he doesn't say, pray. He says, Find somebody else to pray for you. He says, find somebody who has strength to pray for you. The next part of verse 14, it says, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them. Why? Why go to the elders? Why go to the leaders? Why go to your small group leaders? Well, they're meant to be the ones with spiritual strength. They're meant to be the ones who most of the time, are having victory. And he's saying, go to them. When you're having to endure, go to them and draw on their strength. If you're suffering, pray. If you've hit rock bottom and you're weak and the power's gone out of your life, 
out of your prayers and you're overwhelmed with life, go to the spiritually strong and let them pray for you. And then we get to this weird bit, in, still in verse 14. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now you might be thinking that's not weird at all, but trust me, this is weird. Because the word that is used in Greek, alipho, means to, to rub or just simply to oil. The best way really to, be, to translate it would be to rub them with oil in the name of the Lord. It doesn't mean just the little dab of oil on the forehead here. It means... <laughs> so weird. It means to rub them all over with oil. It, the text is saying, after having oiled him in the name of the Lord... It is really bizarre. Now you might be thinking, is, is Pete going to start a massage parlor ministry at Sutton on the high street? Spaces and things. Wendy, that's what we're going to pray for. No, we're not saying that at all. Um, that would mean, no, we're not doing that at all. Okay. Now some of you going, Pete, you really are rather simple. <laughs> or weird. Um, either is fine. Because you might be going, you know, it's just a symbol. This oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying here. That's not the, the Greek that is being used. The word that is being used here, alipho, is only ever used when you wash someone with oil. It's only ever used when you pour oil over someone's head or over their feet. And when you rub oil in. The word alipho is not used for the Holy Spirit's anointing in this passage. That's a different Greek word. Here, it is a lepho. In the other way, when it's anointing with the Holy Spirit, it's, and it's got a kind of guttural, it's, oh, spat on you, sorry. Chiro, chiro. Okay, so we have a lepho, the washing with oil, and the other one, chiro, which is the anointing with oil. And a lepho, which is used here, is, the mundane, the boring word. It's saying it's olive oil. Get olive oil and oil the sick person. It's bizarre, isn't it? So what James is going on about is when you have a believer come into the church and they're weak, and they're weary. And they're physically wounded because they've been beaten for being a believer. And they're broken and cut. You need to pour oil into that wound. I found this verse in Isaiah 1, 6. It says, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness. And he's talking about Israel here, and he's using the idea of a human body metaphorically. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness. There's nothing right. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. 
And it's a picture of a body that is broken and needs oil to soothe it, to comfort it. To heal the external wounds, to soften them. To, to make the hard scars soft. And he's saying, this is the job of your church leaders. He's saying, in essence, there's no one trustworthy out there in the world. There's no trustworthy doctors you can go to. And this was the primitive age of science, of medicine. So come to your church leaders and they will physically care for you. And those leaders in loving, gracious kindness would take some oil and they would rub your sore muscles. They would literally bind up your wounds. And James is once again being so practical. He's saying, don't just say I pray for you and walk away. He's saying, physically, look after them. Physically, be their strength when they need it. But it's also a little bit more than just caring for the wounded. According to Luke 7.46, if you went to someone's house and you were the guest, the first thing they might do after they've cleansed your feet was they would pour oil on your head. They would pour a fragrant, lovely oil to refresh you, to soothe your spirit. And in that part of the world, the sun could have dried you out. Your hair would all frizzed. And so this was a time for refreshment. And that's the idea here. That the wounded, the broken, the pained, the weak, the weary, exhausted believers who are out there fighting in the battle come back. And their commanders, their shepherds, their pastors, their small group leaders, those people come alongside them, get on their knees, pray with them with their spiritual strength so they can have strength. And they bind up their hurts. That's what James is going on about. That there are dry, parched souls, so severely wounded that they can no longer cry out to God. I think of Psalm 23, where the great shepherd says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. And we know what that means, don't we? That when the shepherd brought all the sheep back into the sheepfold at the end of the, the day or wherever they were setting up after they'd been grazing all day, he puts his staff down before he lets them all in. And only one sheep at a time comes through. And as one sheep goes through, the, the shepherd stops the sheep, the rest of them. He checks over the sheep he's allowed in. He checks where there's a wound. 
He gets oil and he pours oil into the wound and he rubs it and he makes it soft and supple. And then he lets the sheep go in. That's the image James is trying to give us. Let's go back to James chapter 5, verse 15. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. And remember the sick person here is the weary, the fatigued, the can't do it anymore person. And James in chapter 1 has said, obviously it's got to be a prayer of faith. He said there, he that asks, doubting wavers. And he who asks in that way receives nothing if you don't have faith. But when you pray believing, ah, but, oh yeah, these people don't have any belief left, do they? They don't have enough energy, enough strength, enough faith. Oh well. It's kind of tough, isn't it, if they've got to have faith to heal themselves? But James is saying, it's my faith. I pray, I give you my faith. I stand in the gap for that man or woman. They use my strength in the Lord. And the word the sick person well, the word well there, another great word, one we've heard so often. It's the Greek word sozo. To save, to deliver, to rescue. And here it's talking about to restore, to make whole again. In the Gospels it says your faith has made you whole. And it's the same word, it doesn't mean physical sickness. The prayer of faith will restore the weary. I think that's a kind of beautiful thought, isn't it? And the Lord will do what for them? Will raise him up. That means to rebuild. It comes from the Greek word agairo. means to arouse, to awaken, to excite. Isn't that a tremendous thought? That this person who's so weary, who's lost all strength, is raised up and given excitement. The idea of being weary, the word that you can use is impotent. And then I go, wait, there we've got this God who's omnipotent, all-powerful. What a contrast that we are imparting into those who are weary the all-power that God gives us through Christ. What a promise we have. I'd like to show you a little video in a minute. And it makes me think about what we're meant to be like as the church. For when we've lost all strength, Somebody should come alongside us. Can we play their video? Be sure of taking the title. And right now he seems to have lost control of his legs. And this is worrying. Oh, and he's...
to go and Johnny is running out of time and is losing he's losing his sense of direction this is worrying oh goodness me this is a horrible sight Jonathan Brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course and Alistair's stopped to help him along and Alistair is going to try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Oh my God, I cannot believe what we are seeing here, Matt. Is this allowed? Is he allowed to help his brother? You know, is that part of the rules? I'm not too sure. We've never seen anything like this before. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable scenes in Cozumel. The Brownlee brothers arm in arm, but it's not by way of celebration. Henry Schumann's celebrating. He's going to win this race in Cozumel out of nowhere. But we have to be concerned about the health of Jonathan Brownlee, and they're not even on the final stretch yet. Schumann wins in Cozumel. The brothers are coming home arm in arm to finish in second and third but Johnny can hardly stand and Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home pushing him home for second Johnny a picture isn't it and I don't know what one you're like this morning maybe you're the one with nothing left then church, we are to be the elder brother here. Put our arm round and help them cross the line. And what's amazing is the elder brother there had a chance to win the race. A chance to podium in the final tally. He gave it all up, didn't he? It's amazing. It's amazing. I don't know what one we are this morning, but that is what we should be like as a church. And I'm the worst because I don't want to speak to any of you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because it, it's costly, it's hard. Do we believe in prayer? Back to Victor Meldrew, or is that who we are? Oh no, I don't believe it. Back in the fourth century AD, there was a man, he was called John of Antioch, and he was a preacher, and he was called the Golden Mouth because he was a tremendous preacher. And if the, John, if the band, uh, could come back up as well, the band, the worship team, they could come back up, it would be great. And John of Antioch, he did this sermon on prayer. And he said, the potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. 
It has bridled the rage of lions. It has expelled demons. It has broken the chains of death. It has healed diseases. It has rescued cities from destruction. It has stopped the sun in its course. It has arrested the progress of thunderbolts. Do we believe that about prayer? He says, there is in prayer an all-sufficient armory, a treasure undiminished, a mine never exhausted. It's a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by any storm. It's the root, the the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. What he's saying is prayer is powerful and effective. That as we pray for ourselves and for others and for the world, we can change the world. Do we believe it? No, I don't believe it. Jesus makes an incredible claim. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these. Isn't that just incredible? He's saying, in his name, we can pray against sin and against death. When we pray, his power is released into the world, into our lives. He's saying, you, when you pray, can do what the incarnate Savior did as he walked around. We can storm the status quo. We can change the oppression We can change the power of sin and death. We can change all these things when we pray. And that's what James is saying. If you're struggling and suffering, pray. He's saying, if you can run on your own, run on your own. But if you can't go on anymore, rely on the strength of someone who will carry you, who has faith for you, who has strength for you. Allow them to pray for you. Do we believe that this morning? Do we believe in prayer?